Numbers chapter 21. I think this may be my favorite narrative in the whole book. It is a particular favorite because of the way it is traced throughout redemptive history and even human history. Let's get right to it. Before we do, let's pray. Lord, you are so good to speak to us and to be present with us and to have those things come together now that by your presence with us, we can hear your voice. And so it is we pray for your Holy Spirit to come now to invade our hearts that you might bear witness to the reading and to the proclamation of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ, and only Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Numbers chapter 21, the first nine verses. Listen to God's word. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, if you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was called, was named uh, Hormah. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned. When we spoke against the Lord and against you, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Before we get to that bronze snake in verses four through nine, a quick word about the first three verses. Verses one through three give an account of the first victory for the second generation. Last week, we saw the time jump that came between chapters 19 and 20, the passing of the baton on to that second generation. Miriam has died. Aaron has died. And the role and duties of high priest have been given to Aaron's son, Eleazar. And the Lord has said that Moses will not be the one to take Israel into the promised land. And so the focus is now off that first generation, the generation that came out of Egypt and has died in the desert as a result of their grumblings and rebellion against the Lord. Instead, the focus is now on this second generation. Will they learn from the mistakes of the first generation? Will they be more successful than that first generation? And isn't that what we still want today? Don't we want our children to be more successful than we were? And not just successful in a worldly way. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? The book, this book of the Bible, was written, first of all, for that second generation. 
the purpose of calling the second generation of Israel to arms as the holy army of God. And these opening verses recount that first victory for the second generation over the Canaanites by the Lord's hand. The Canaanites are those who currently possess the promised land. It's where they're going. So this first victory for the second generation is indicative that the second generation will be more successful than the first by the Lord's hand. If we want successive generations to be successful, then we must look to the Lord and not on our enterprising ways. That context is important to keep in mind as we now see this following narrative about the bronze snake. And the account shows us that the second generation is not any better than the generation before it. Every generation must still deal with the sinful nature. We all must still struggle with the same sinful condition. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so this second generation is no better than the first, but they are also no worse than the first. And that is helpful for us to keep in mind today when we want to demean other generations. Baby boomers, Generation X, millennials, iGen or Gen Z or whatever it is we're going to end up calling this youngest generation. We all have things that we do poorly, and we all have things that we do well. It is the Lord who brings about our success. And so the second generation grows impatient. And verse 5 says, They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water. We detest this miserable food. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? They are simply rehearsing what it is that they have heard. Rehearsing the complaints, the same complaints as the previous generation, having grown up in households where that complaint was frequently heard. Don't we so often hear ourselves in our children? Sometimes that's good, but other times... Mm. Well, God's redemptive plan here comes in two parts. The first part comes in verse 6. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. That's the first part of the redemptive plan, sending venomous snakes. Last week I asked the question, why does God providentially put us into difficult places and difficult circumstances? Because if we're honest, our self-centered prayers are essentially, dear God, make my life easy, right? Dear God, make my life easy and fun, that would be great. Difficult situations drive us to Christ. C.S. Lewis from The Problem of Pain. We ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Difficult situations drive us to Christ, and that is exactly what happens here. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. It's so great. The people recognized their sin as sin and confessed it as an act of repentance. And Moses then intercedes for the people. 
This is to be the pattern for God's people. We're not perfect, but when the Lord shows us our sin, we are quick to confess it and benefit from Christ's intercession for us. And so we don't use imperfection as an excuse. Well, nobody's perfect, just the way I am, oh well. Often as we do that, when we say, well, nobody's perfect, it's just how I am, you just have to accept me the way I am, I don't really want anything to change. What we then look for is emotional confirmation that God still loves us anyway. And so the therapeutic gospel is the preferred gospel for most. The therapeutic gospel meets the felt needs of self-interest. I want to feel loved for who I am, to be pitied for what I've gone through, to feel intimately understood, to be accepted unconditionally. But it is, is, it not, is it not infinitely better to be actually loved than simply to feel loved? Venomous snakes are biting and killing people. Do you really just want to feel loved? Or do you want to be loved? To be delivered from sin's cure, curse, sin's power, and sin's consequence. Jesus makes it possible for us to confess and repent that we might receive God's actual loving kindness, not just emotional feelings of acceptance. And so in our worship, we have a time to confess our sin, which is always followed by an assurance of the gospel. And that is what happens here in the second part of that twofold redemptive work. God sends snakes so that the people confess, and then God responds with the gospel. Verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, I don't care who you are. That's just an amazing narrative, isn't it? But that's not the end. That's just the beginning. And so the account continues in the book of 2 Kings. The books of Kings and Chronicles tell us about the good kings and the bad kings of Israel and Judah. The bad kings, and most of them were bad kings, were self-serving and encouraged idol worship. The good kings sought to serve the Lord and destroyed the false idols that were being worshipped. The good kings destroyed the Baal stones and the Asherah poles that were connected to Canaanite worship. And in 2 Kings 18, we read the account of good king Hezekiah. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. And he broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. They had made an idol of it and even named it Nehushtan, which literally means bronze thing. (laughs) What else would you call it? Mankind's capacity to make and worship idols is astounding, isn't it? We can even take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing to worship the created rather than the creator. And here we see worshiping the redemptive work rather than worshiping the redeemer himself. God had Moses make a good thing for his redemptive work. And eventually they began to worship the thing. 
When I was in high school, I loved my church's youth group. I especially loved the youth retreats, the other special programs that we did. And the reason I loved them was because so often God did a tremendous work in my life through them. And I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I realized that I had made idols out of those youth retreats and programs. It was good that God was doing a good work in me, but I had also made idols out of those things. I began to depend on the program. I would wait to meet with the Lord knowing there was a retreat coming up. So rather than meet with the Lord every day in other ways, I would wait until the retreat. And I would be upset if the program changed or even the retreat location changed. Why would you change locations? God meets us there. Why would you change how we do this thing? God meets us when we do it this way. I was a Presbyterian right from the outset. As I look back now on my life, I can see so many times good things, things that God was pleased to utilize to draw me near to him and my tendency to worship those things, even a tendency to worship the people that God used to draw me near to him. Today, we have no lack of celebrity pastors, many of whom don't want to be celebrity pastors. Their ministry is outstanding, but we tend to put them up on pedestals. There are fantastic books, materials, camps, conferences, resources. It is good to utilize them as God's gift, but not to view them as God himself. Sometimes the irony of idolatry is ridiculous. Not long ago, the Wall Street Journal carried this two-sentence news story that really is a parable. The elms in South Park, Pennsylvania must be cut down because they are obstructing the monument to Joyce Kilmer. They have lifted their leafy arms so high that passersby can no longer read the inscription that begins, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. In many aspects of life, God is pleased to give us good things, food, drink, friends, family, work, hobbies, We should be aware of our tendency to make these into idols, seeking meaning and satisfaction in the things rather rather than in the God who gives us these good things. Israel eventually took the good thing, this bronze snake, and began to worship it and gave it the name Nehushtan. Nehushtan would be a great name for a pet, especially a pet snake, I suppose, but there you go. So 2 Kings warns us, How can we take a good thing from God and turn into an idol this thing against God? I don't care who you are. That's that's just cool, isn't it? But that's also not the end of it. In your bulletin, there are three graphics that may look familiar. On the left is the emblem for the medical corps with the Cadducees, two snakes on a pole with wings. You may see that when you go into your doctor's office. On the right side is the flag for the World Health Organization, and it has a snake on a pole in the middle. That is called the Rod of Asclepius. And then in the middle, and also on the front of the bulletin, and the title of the sermon, it is the Star of Life and is the trademark for emergency medical services and seen internationally on the back of ambulances. And what is right in the middle of that Star of Life? A snake on a pole. 
all of these find their roots in Numbers chapter 21. The God-ordained snake on a pole to save his people. It is Nehushtan, the ambulance driver. The Greek god of Asclepius and the Greek god Apollo and his Cadgesius uh, are both born out of Israel's bronze snake on a pole. Does it ever seem strange to you that a snake on a pole is the symbol for medical care? In fact, the earliest known version of the Hippocratic Oath sworn by physicians back in the third century began, I swear by Apollo the hearer, healer, by Asclepius, by Hygieia, by Panacea, and by all the gods and goddesses, making them my witnesses, that I will carry out according to my ability and judgment this oath and this indenture. Well, that was the third century. But the count that we're reading was more than 1,500 years before that. Long before the Greek gods and all of their stories, we have God and the narratives that were written and preserved. Bible critics and skeptics talk about the similarities between the accounts of the Bible and accounts that exist in other religions and other cultures. And the answer is, of course there's similarities. Where do you think they came from? They find their origin in the God of the Bible. Now, certainly many of the accounts came from an oral tradition of the original events that God did among his people. And then God had certain people at certain times under inspiration to write down these accounts, emphasizing certain aspects that are distinct from the versions among other religions and cultures. In fact, one of those distinctions in the Bible is that it shows God's people continually making mistakes and God preserving his people by his own power. They even recorded Israel taking this bronze serpent and turning it into an idol that had to be destroyed. And human history today is still impacted by what happened and recorded in Numbers chapter 21 and then 2 Kings 18. I don't care who you are. That's just cool, isn't it? But that's still not the end of the story. We now come to the New Testament and what it was that we read earlier in John 3, including the well-known verse of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And in those familiar words, it's important to know that for God so loved the world does not mean God loved the world so much, but that God thus loved the world. Giving his son is how God thus saved the world. God's love is not an emotional outburst. I love you so much. You're so cute. God's love is decisive and active. This is how I love you. God's not trying to make us feel good. God is making us good. God isn't trying to make us feel good. God is actually making us good. The righteousness of Christ credited to us, declaring us perfect, and then a work of sanctification that will persevere until the time of glorification when we are infinitely and eternally good. And so the larger context of John 3.16 is in that immediately preceding verses. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The bronze snake on a pole in Numbers 21 foreshadowed Jesus. The people made an idol of it, 
And the Lord had Hezekiah destroy the idol so that they could regain sight of the promised Messiah. And then Jesus came and proved himself to be our redeemer. Jesus is the one we worship. It was never the bronze snake that saved. It was Jesus. It was always Jesus. And it still is. May the truth set us free. We might worship Jesus and him alone.